Welcome to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, a nonprofit organization that exists to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. This podcast explores and examines contemporary and historic issues of equality, fairness, and justice with a Jacksonian lens through in-depth conversations with experts, innovators, and those doing the boots on the ground work. I am your host, Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center. So today I am excited to be in conversation with Anne Rolfes, the director of the Louisiana Bucket Brigade. The Bucket Brigade's core partners are communities facing the brunt of pollution and illness in Louisiana. The Bucket Brigade has supported these fence line communities in Louisiana for 20 years by providing technical support in the areas of media, air monitoring, organizing, cartography, accident research, and report writing. And the brigade, and I, this is my favorite part, also provides faith that we can win and a track record of doing so. And thank you so much for joining me for tea today. Yeah, happy to have, happy to be here. And uh, thanks for the, um, the coffee, the tea mug. Absolutely. You don't have to be drinking tea, although it no, is. No, I am drinking tea, exactly. actually. I guess I can't show you that would spill it, but it's true. I am drinking tea. Perfect. Well, and I will join you in that. Um, so one thing I think, uh, just to set out, we had a little bit of technical difficulty last week. So My we fault. are, no, not at all. We're, yeah, we're, blaming, nice. the rain, we're blaming the rainstorm. Um, <laughs> so we're, we're going to um, record this and then premiere it. Um, but someone from the Bucket Brigade will join us live to answer questions. So we're excited about that. That's a new venture for us. So thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. I think I want to start with what is probably the basic question. And that is how do you define environmental justice? Well, let me uh, not answer your question right off the bat and tell you it's really an honor to participate and of course, Justice Jackson is a hero. How can you not know about him? And, have, and he couldn't be a hero of, of anybody's. Um, and so we appreciate the, you know, the underscore of justice, right, in his life. Um, and then also in the work that we do, I will tell you that when I first started to do this work in my home state, I'm from here, what, what really was most important to me was that idea of justice. Uh, because I had grown up in an oil town where there was so much wealth and yet actually less than a hundred miles away were communities that were losing their homes and their, their actually their lives and their health to pollution. And so for me, environmental justice is very fundamentally that everybody should have the, the right to live, to live and breathe and work and play uh, without being assaulted by the environment in which they live. And, and of course, well, that's that's not just everybody. You can't talk about environmental justice, excuse me, without acknowledging that uh, black and brown communities bear an absolutely unequal burden of that pollution. And so here in Louisiana, the African-American population is a third of our of our uh, of our citizens in the state. And yet, if you go near a refinery, you find that over half of the people who live next to an oil refinery are African-American. And so the, there's a very much an unequal burden in this state of the black community bearing the brunt of pollution. And uh, it's, a, it's 
really, it feels like very important work and that's why it's easy to stay inspired. That's perfect. And so, and this is a conversation that will be very familiar to our regular audiences in that um, although we have broken each of these months into topics, there's inevitably some sort of intertwining amongst them because justice is rarely just a single issue. Um, and, and so that holistic view of it and that intersectionality of it is, is something that we um, need to talk about because that absolutely informs the definition of justice and the work that is done under that word. And, and what's really you know, upsetting here, and it is the reality, and yet just because it's happened forever doesn't mean that it's okay, is that you have, you know, on the racial part of it, you have really the white powers that be. Not every, not all of them are white who are letting this happen, but most of them are white. And so in a place like St. James Parish, where we're currently working, you have the parish council that has okayed the build, build out of significant number of petrochemical plants, right? There already are 12 there. They've given the green light for one of the world's largest plastics plants. And what are they doing? They're cramming it in the black community. They're putting it in a district that is 90% black and, and then claiming that, oh, everybody in the parish wants it. Well, that's not true, right? You know, the people who live exactly where it would be certainly don't want it. And, and so it's really chilling to see that some of these stereotypes of the deep south are not just stereotypes, that it's actually you know, still happening. You'd think it was 1900 around here, by the way, that some of this stuff is still shaking out according to race. And again, it's, it's important to expose it and to fight it. Well, and you mentioned, I wanna, let's take a step back maybe 20 years or so, and let's talk about the founding of the Louisiana Bucket Brigade. You mentioned that Louisiana is your home state um, and so what, what needs were you seeing in the community at the time? How, how did the Louisiana Bucket Brigade come to be? Yeah, it really the need that, that was there is, is the need that is still exists today, which is this, this idea of putting huge petrochemical plants smack in, in the heart of black communities. Real specifically though, at the time of our founding, I had just learned about the bucket, which are, are, were named after the Louisiana Bucket Brigade. The bucket is an air sampling device. And I learned about the bucket and I was, was working at the time, just volunteering in communities with some of the women who lived along Cancer Alley. And I could see how people loved to be able to take an air sample and then have the results for themselves. Um, if you think about what the usual dynamic is, usually you know, I'm sitting on the porch, maybe my kids are playing in the yard, we smell something terrible, we have to call the company or we call the state Department of Environmental Quality. Well, those are two institutions that don't care about me and my family, right? In fact, you know, we, we just don't exist as far as they're concerned. And so when I first learned about the bucket, I saw how it transformed that situation. No longer do I just have to call an institution that doesn't care about me. I can get in my yard and take my own air sample and document exactly what's in the air on that day. So I was really inspired by that tool. The women that I was working with at the time were also, and so we started the Bucket Brigade. Okay, so part of what you said there really, um, I guess, sort of informs my next question, which is: these are partnerships, and these yes. are these are communities working to both identify the problems and the challenges in their areas, and then also working towards solutions. So am yes. I ex explaining that correctly? <laughs> okay, good. Yes. Perfect. Yeah. 
And so one of the conversations we had with the National Environmental Justice Advisory Council um, for our first conversation in March really focused on the concept of justice and what exactly does justice mean to someone. And what I found interesting from the NEJAC representatives was that justice in their mind needs to come from the communities. It can't be a top-down explanation of this will make things right. It has to be the community, community themselves surfacing the solutions or, or you know, what does justice actually mean to them? Does justice mean closing down the plant? Does justice mean imposing restrictions or regulations that, that change um, or I guess help protect or clean up the air? And so I wanted to talk to you about the work that the communities, um, and I have to imagine it varies by community, but what are some of the definitions of justice that the communities have come up with and are working towards or have worked towards? Yeah, I mean, you think about it, every human being should have agency over their own lives. And so if somebody walked into your house and said, this is how we're going to fix, you know, your front steps, you probably wouldn't agree, you know, you have maybe a different idea on how to do it. And so it certainly is the same thing in the communities that we partner with. And uh, people's solutions have ranged according to the situation. So the first place I ever worked was in a place called St. Charles Parish, which is a county, a parish is our version of a county. And it was a neighborhood called Diamond. And in that situation, they felt as if the situation was so dire and they were so polluted by a shell chemical plant on one side of them and then a shell refinery on the other side of them. They were sandwiched between. That was the word people always used, were sandwiched between. They felt like they had to get out of there. And it was, it was heartbreaking because it was a historic community. It's not just that people knew their neighbors, but they, you know, their grandparents had lived next to each other and known each other. And they, you know, before that, they had all been nearby on land that had been a plantation. And, you know, their ancestors were, were connected. But the pollution was so bad that people were willing, or not just willing, but they were fighting to get out of there because they felt like their health was so compromised. So for the community of Diamond, that was a solution, was, was what they called relocation. And we worked together and, and achieved that. And then on the other end, uh, today in St. James Parish, there's a community group called Rise St. James, and they are working, and other residents are as well, working tooth and nail to prevent a, a facility called Formosa Plastics from building because they don't want to end up like Diamond did. They don't want to have so many plants around them that they'll have to leave their ancestral home. Um, and in between those years, there have been people who just wanted a, a cessation on expansions. Others have wanted the state to install a robust air monitoring network. So there, you're right, there have been a, a, a variety of solutions. I will say now that we are really at a moment where people just don't want any more of this stuff built. And that has a, a much different feel uh, to it than just sort of living with the, with the situation that you're dealt. Well, and so, you know, one of the things that has occurred to me as we've been having these conversations this year is that a lot about what we talk about with regard to equity and justice really is, and this is not surprising, really is about addressing a power imbalance or a power differential. Um, and because the environmental justice gap typically, as you mentioned, impacts communities of color or lower income or the indigenous populations um, of the area more severely, how, 
how do you go about, well, actually, maybe it's sort of a two-part question. How do you go about helping people see that there is a power imbalance and or working with the communities to help them show people this? And then how, how does the work that the fence line that you're doing with the fence line communities then address that power imbalance? Yeah, well, here in Louisiana, I'm going to just take notes because your question had a couple of points and I don't <laughs> want to forget. Um, uh, okay, hang on. Um, yep. So here in Louisiana, if you think if, if where we are is we're a lot of the, a lot of the communities that we collaborate with are right next to the Mississippi River. And if you think about, well, what used to be right next to the Mississippi River? Oh, it's plantations. And some of the, the facilities that are there today, the chemical plants and refineries are actually in the same footprint as those plantations. You know, they needed the plantations and the chemical plants needed many of the same things. They needed a huge tract of land. They needed access to the river. And they both need a, a, a political situation and government that will facilitate abuse of the black population. And so today it's putting these big plants right in the middle. So that power imbalance is pretty obvious because honestly, the same dynamics play out. But I will say, you know, your question about how do you convince people that there's a power imbalance? Well, the communities certainly know it. But the otherwise, you know, our fight is not really elucidating for them. The, the, the roots of the racism or the, the horrible racial dynamics at play. Our, our, our goal is to win. And so we wanna actually show that we do have power and, and, and to write that power imbalance. So again, if you think about St. James Parish, Formosa Plastics came in trumpeting the fact that they were a $9.4 billion facility. Well, that certainly seems like a power imbalance. And yet we are very close to beating them. And so, you know, we have power. It's just a matter of using it strategically and getting more resources to build it up. We talked a little bit, um, and my recollection is that the, the Bucket Brigade works with usually one community at a time because these are fairly in-depth projects. Um, and we had talked uh, a little bit um, before our technical difficulties overwhelmed us last time about um, how the communities keep people focused on these issues. And then also how do they keep up the momentum within their community since these aren't, since these aren't projects that you can sort of see the end site is three months from now. These are more you know, years sometimes um, on what you're working. Yeah, well, it takes a rare person to dig in and, and take on these battles, which are overwhelming and they're really all consuming. You know, how many of, of us in our spare time, you know, go to meetings, talk with journalists, get on Zoom calls in every single second of our spare time. But that's what it takes in the communities where we're working for people to stand up together and beat these plants. And so, you know, in, in one sense, it's an existential need for survival that that drives them to be engaged and yet you know levels of political participation and levels of participation and civic engagement in general can be quite low so a lot of people more people aren't involved than are and so what do you attribute this to faith right some calling uh the urgency of the injustice you know i think it, it really varies for every person you know i know for me you know, we began with a conversation of justice, just the deep, deep injustice of it is, is one of the things that keeps me engaged. 
Um, Sharon Levine in uh, St. James Parish, actually, I, I just spoke with her today. You know, for her, it is a calling. I mean, she actually heard God call her to do this work. And, and faith, when you're dealing with a, a huge company, a $9 billion company, faith is a huge component of this. You know, if you don't believe and know you can win, uh, then it'll be, a, it'll be a really long road. But when you have that faith, it, it feels a lot better. And I want to talk a little bit about Cancer Alley. And so for those of us not familiar with Louisiana, can you give me sort of the, the geographic endpoints of that? Yeah, so Cancer Alley is, again, Mississippi River is a very foundational idea down here. So Cancer Alley is the river, the Mississippi River, between, it's considered between Baton Rouge and New Orleans. It actually does go a little bit further south to a smaller town, the smaller parish of St. Bernard, but it's about a 150, uh, an 85-mile 80, stretch of river that has almost 200 petrochemical plants there. And it's, it's clearly, you know, there's been a decision made to just write this part of the world off and cram petrochemical plants there. Um, I think what's chilling now is that there's so much happening with the export. You know, it used to be, at least with oil, that everything we refined or, you know, everything was for, for use in, in the country because that was the law. But during the Obama administration, the, the export ban was lifted by Congress and he did not unfortunately veto it. And so now it means that there is this global bonanza that if these companies can export the natural gas, the oil, any of it, um, and they are you know, working to build and expand relentlessly here. Hmm. It doesn't and seem- And so Cancer Alley is gonna, you know, is getting, is getting worse, not better. I was gonna say, it doesn't seem as if 85 miles is, a lot of, uh, is certainly not yeah. a, a lengthy stretch. And you mentioned, I think there's a couple hundred chemical plants there already. Yeah, yes. It's hard to know a precise number, but yes, that's right. Okay. And so then, um, I guess I'm also curious as to where are these conversations taking place in terms of what justice would be? So are they at the local level or are they with, are they with the city governments? Um, is it with the state government? Um, is, it, is it even broader than that? Do you actually take the conversation to the heads of the corporations themselves or to people in Congress? I'm just curious as to sort of, and maybe it's all of those, but just curious, right. sort of where, where are those conversations happening? Right, well, well you know, the, it, it's interesting at the, at the local level, the parish council, which would be your county council, a parish council in the case of St. James Parish is where some of these decisions are made. And what happens is that you have these seven people, uh, six men, one woman sitting up there, pretty impassive, but you have the community members in St. James Parish speaking really clearly about what justice is. And I will tell you that those are some of the most profound moments of my life to watch these women stand up before this parish council that, you know, in some cases, one guy was on a cell phone, other guys looking down, somebody else might be sitting there, but are they feeling or hearing this? No. And these women are stating really clearly what justice is. Uh, you know, I just want to say some of the names because I think it's important. You know, Rita Cooper has been really involved. Sharon Levine lives, uh, leads Rise St. James. Gail LaBeouf, Barbara Washington, Myrtle Felton, um, you know, Ophelia Williams, those are just some of the names of, of, the, of the women. And then Pastor Harry Joseph has been there too. 
they've gone to meetings of the parish council, you know, numerous meetings over what, seven, 10 years and stood before these, this body and said very clearly what justice looks like. And justice does not look like cramming these petrochemical plants into the highest majority black district of the parish, right? Justice is not deciding that you're gonna give this crazy zoning category called residential future industrial only to the two highest majority black districts in the parish. And so, you know, it's a real contrast where you have this profound statements by, by the St. James residents, and then they're utterly blown off by the parish council. And I think what's always impressed me is that this, these residents continue to talk and continue to go there, even though really they're, they're quite disrespected by the local government. Um, so that's very vigorously where, where justice is spoken of. And, and you know, now certainly we'll be going to the federal government a lot because you know, ironically, or not ironically, but it's kind of funny to think that we probably have a better chance to access and influence President Biden than we do our local government or even our state government. And that's interesting. The residential future industrial, if I'm remembering that correctly, yes. seems to imply that they don't anticipate residents remaining there. Like it's it's yes. the, their, their goal really is to remove the residents from these areas. You're, that thank you. That is really well put. Their goal is to remove the residents, and and so what they it's it's quite manipulative. What they're what they say is, oh well, those areas of our parish are dwindling right? The population is dying out. But what the parish does not acknowledge is that they're closing services. So they closed that there was a cotton, there was a cooperative, uh, cotton, a cotton cooperative there that was closed. Um, they closed the post office more recently, closed, moved the high school, shut it down and moved it to a different part of the parish, shut down an evacuation route for one part of the district. And so they're actively killing off these two highest majority black districts, actively killing them off. They're, they're surrounding one of the parks, a playground with a petrochemical plant, with a methanol plant. And then they want to say, oh, well, people are moving out. Nobody's, well, yeah, nobody's coming in there because you're killing it, you know? And, and, and that is, you know, again, if you get to justice, that, that's really profound to see it happen. You know, we know in the abs, well, not even in the abstract, you know, we can see that racism exists in so many different forms. And so to watch it now in 2021, take the form of this real manipulation of a land use map uh, is, is both chilling and then a, a, an important reason to get to work. Well, and you had mentioned that for a lot of these families, um, this is where their families have always lived. This is, yeah. this is generations of their families have been on, on, maybe not necessarily in these exact homes, but in this area, um, you know, perhaps in some cases in that they're still in the family homes. And so that's, um, you know, we had talked earlier about how there is this dichotomy of the argument of, well, people aren't moving in or, or people seem to be leaving. Um, and maybe it's a, it's a little bit of a chicken and an egg thing. Is it, is it that people are leaving because or are you doing these things in order to have that self-fulfilling prophecy that now people yes. are? Yeah, it's the latter. They're, they're purposely killing it off. Yesterday, I was in St. James and I was in the home of Barbara Washington. And she tells, when she speaks, she leads off with an amazing story. 
her her great she lives on land and how did she get that land her great 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 grandmother bought 34 acres of land in 1874 right what nine years after the civil war ended somehow she managed to buy 34 acres of land and and it that land has survived you know been in the family you know they've kept it through all the violence you know over you know over 150 years and now what threatens it really the world's largest plastics plant i mean or one of the world's largest plastics plant i mean whose side are you on barbara washington or the plastics plant right i mean it's kind of a no brainer well and i feel like a lot of the conversation with regard to um let's call it industrialization because that's that feels right for this um has to do with these are going to bring jobs to the area. These are this is actually going to fuel the economy, um, and so wondered if you could speak to a little bit about what you're seeing in these communities and what these communities are experiencing um, with that as the backdrop. Yeah, it's it's very much you know fueling whose economy off of whose back. So it's sure it's definitely true that there will be some jobs that somebody will get. It certainly won't be anybody from the fourth and fifth districts who will be hired. That's not the way these things ever turn out. They don't get the jobs. And in fact, in one of our battles in, in St. James Parish, they were, they were, you know, touting this local jobs nonsense. And they would say, you know, the average salary is going to be, you know, $900,000. I'm exaggerating, but this is, you know, they're like that. <laughs> I was going to say, I have and, to wait all of a sudden I'm in the room. I know. <laughs> and then of course we say, well, yeah, what's the mean salary? You know, they're, they're just, they're, they have all these sort of, of these tricks to manipulate information. And then, then this great colleague of mine, her name is Kim Terrell from the Tulane Environmental Law Clinic. She went and found some of the job ads and found that a requirement for these jobs that for some of the jobs was going to be to speak Mandarin. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, how many people from St. James Parish do you think they were going to be hiring if it was a job requirement to speak Mandarin? So the, the job argument is not a true one for local people. And I will say that when there was a, a pipeline being rammed through St. James Parish, it was called the Bayou Bridge Pipeline, we were going to the construction site and you would see, you'd see license plates from everywhere else but Louisiana. You'd see Alabama, Texas, Mississippi, Arkansas. And then you, I even saw Utah plates, but never Louisiana. And, you know, that just speaks to this really twisted tale they're telling when our governor gets out there and touts the construction jobs and yet, and even gives them tax breaks, right? Based on the number of jobs they'll provide. And yet there's no follow through to find out who's getting these jobs. And, you know, it's of course important for us not to pit worker against ourselves, right? We're glad somebody's getting a job. They just needs to be a job at a solar panel factory or installing wind turbines, right? Or weatherizing homes. It should not be creating a big toxic facility that's gonna kill people and destroy their homes. Okay. Well, and you have mentioned a couple of partners that you have worked with as well. And so I want to I want to talk about the importance of partnership. You know, we all of these organizations that we have been so fortunate to speak with this year and, and last year are obviously tackling a particular problem, or in some instances, perhaps a few problems, but no one organization can tackle right. everything. Um, so, talk to us about the partnerships that you that the, that you have, or the fence line communities have, and and how important those are to to advancing this. Yeah, well, you know, you could do this work from all sorts of different angles. Um, you could be in the legislature trying to pass policy, which would actually be wonderful. You could be at the federal level doing lobbying. 
Um, you know, you could be a scientist getting in there and really understanding the emissions and kind of whipping people up that way. But, and so it's just a matter of how you come at it. Um, I was in the Peace Corps in West Africa. I then went and worked, you can see behind me, this is Ken Sarawiwa, who was a Nigerian leader. Um, you know, I just, my career always really began by working alongside communities most impacted. And so in Louisiana, when we started the Bucket Brigade, that's just how it went. Um, and so our core partners are groups like Rise St. James, Inclusive Louisiana, and then the past um, groups like Residents for Air Neutralization, one of my favorite names, and then Concerned Citizens of Norco. You know, it's always been these, these, these groups based in the communities where the harm is happening. And then of course, there are other NGO partners, um, but those community partnerships are, the, are really the soul of what we do. Do you, you know, I wanna sort of be clear too, um, going back to our sort of top-down approach versus servicing from the yeah. community. Um, do the communities come to you? Are they looking for, hey, we have this challenge and we need someone to help us navigate this? Or is it that the Bucket Brigade is looking for communities where they might be able to help? Yeah, we're, we're not that big, right? So we, at some point, maybe we can be deep in some of these more than one fight at a time. But right now, oh, sorry, that's, a, hang on, let me just get rid of that. No worries. Apologize. Sorry, you warned me about that. <laughs> I think it's cordless. All right, well, there's nothing I can do about it. No worries. Um, um, so when, and when we're working with a community, we're, you know, we go there, every, you know, a couple times a week on the phone all the time. Um, you know, my coworker was just on the phone with somebody trying to make sure they can get Word installed on the laptop that they have, you know, that kind of detailed work. We, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, trained everybody on how to get on Zoom, make sure everybody had a cell phone or a computer where they could so that people could remain engaged. Um, and if you're taking on a $9 billion company like Formosa, or project like Formosa, you know, you've got to really keep, keep things moving. And so we, it's incredibly intense for us when we're involved in a, in a battle. And so we usually have one, you know, deep, deep partner at a time. And then we're, you know, we're helping some other people a little bit, but just, just one deeply at a time. And so it has always happened that one partner comes from the prior one. So for example, when we were working in Diamond in the neighborhood I described at the outset, um, uh, some people from the neighboring town of New Sarpy would come because they were also having trouble with the, with the, um, with the refinery. And so then we, we, you know, after, after we were done in Diamond, we went down to New Sarpy. And then a few years later, I got a call from people in St. Rose. Well, they had gotten my number from Margie Richard, who led the group in Diamond. And it's all, it's that kind of thing. Um, you know, I just called a man this morning who was asking us for help with a new facility that's planned for his neighborhood. So there's, there's a, there's a lot happening here and there's no shortage, unfortunately, of work that, that you know, where we're called in to help. I want to go back to, to what you were describing about one of the early communities, I think it was the diamond community. So the mm -hmm. one that ended up being relocated. Yes. What does that actually mean? Like, what all does that entail? Um, and I'm thinking, you know, is it partially who funds the relocation? So is it they're trying to move to another particular community or is it at that point dispersal to wherever they yeah. can go? Um, and how, how does that logistically work? Yeah, I mean, buyouts happen in various scenarios. This one Shell paid for, and that was our battle to get them to pay for it. 
you know, in, in South Louisiana, where the communities are sinking into the ocean because of, you know, human caused climate change, it's actually the government that's paying to relocate people who are flooding all the time. Um, but in the case of, of Diamond, you know, we fought hard to get it so that people would get enough and then not be able, not have to go and have a mortgage because, you know, the company wants to say, oh, we'll pay you fair market value, which sounds really great, doesn't it? But, oh yeah, by the way, you've totally devalued my property. So now my house is worth $10,000. And so we had to cut through this nonsense about fair market value and, and get to a, a floor, you know, below which they wouldn't go. And yet, you know, and, and people... Most people in that neighborhood took the deal. Some people stayed. Um, but, you know, one of, one of the real issues here, and this is kind of getting a, off in a different direction, is that when you have property that's been handed down through generations, sometimes the titles aren't clear. You know, the, the paperwork hasn't been done. Or, you know, maybe my grandmother passed down this house and now me and my three siblings are, are living in it. And now there's a buyout. And each of us is getting enough, what, for a fourth of a house, and we don't want to all go buy a house and live together again, but this, anyway, it's, it's, it's complicated, and a lot of times the structures aren't created to, to deal with those complications, and, it, and, and they somehow cast aspersions on those situations when those are family, you know, profound family situations mm -hmm. that should be honored and actually, you know, valued monetarily, so uh, in, in the case of Diamond Shell paid, um, but it, it can, yeah, it can differ depending on the scenario. Want to talk a little bit too, we have a lot of conversations here at the Jackson Center about civics and about civic engagement. And it strikes me that, and this actually may be sort of a gross stereotype, that typically lower income populations, African-American populations, indigenous populations are less well-versed in civic engagement. Um, so how do you work with them um, to enhance those skills? Is it is it teaching them how to advocate for themselves? Is it really just helping them find the platforms or find the people with whom to speak? Um, because as you have mentioned, and I'm, I have no doubt about this, their stories are compelling. So it's not so much needing to tell them what to say, so is it more navigating? Yeah, I have I have found that that the the opposite of what you're saying is true. That the that the communities that I've worked with, you know, some have been white, some have been black and white, and mostly they've been African American. But they are more civically engaged than any community I've ever lived in because they have to be right. They're getting run over by government at every level. You know, look no farther than Georgia, which is the example playing out before us all. Right, amazing civic engagement there. Um, and yet, look at the look at the overwhelming response by the state. Um, and and so in my case, it's just you know the example of Pastor Joseph and all the women who were going to the council to to give to testify. Um, you know they've been doing that work for a long long before I ever showed up. And so in our case, it's just a matter of of amplifying that a little bit, right? And and figuring out okay, well, what is it that you are doing? And oh, can we? get a good lawyer with you who might help you out or, you know, uh, find any other technical resource. An urban planner and a cartographer helped us really pull apart the really racist land use plan that the parish has. Um, so it's just adding a bit of muscle and amplification to people who already have an amazing analysis and who are already quite engaged, unfortunately. I mean, it's too bad they have to be engaged, isn't it? 
Mm-hmm. Well, you've yeah. mentioned in a lot of the um, the language uh, about the Bucket Brigade too, also talks about media and how important mm-hmm. the media is. Yeah. So I also would love for you to speak a little bit about, you know, how that plays out. Why is that so important that the media be involved? Yeah, well, I'm just writing down uh, to remember. Um, well, so so it's not as if any situation could be as successful as the community leaders in Louisiana have been in, in getting media. You know, you could try to get attention for a lot of matters, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't get coverage. But in this case, you do have people who have a pretty profound uh, analysis of the situation and they're great spokespeople. I mean, if you, if you think about the South and what are some of the, the, the stereotypes about us, it would be that we're good storytellers or that there's some sort of character, you know, it's kind of interesting characters around here. And that's all true in the communities that we collaborate with. And so you put these great storytellers in front of a camera, well, you know, that's pretty compelling. And for us, media is really important because it's a way to get a story out to a, to a larger universe. You know, as an example, um, you know, on the one hand, media did us a real disservice last week because it, um, the local paper editorialized pretty vociferously against the work in St. James and even, you know, put the words, if you can imagine, put the words environmental justice in quotation marks as if it's not a real thing, right? As if it's not an established field of scholarship, right? For half a century. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was a pretty, you know, that was terrible. The, the whole editorial was terrible. And so media, different media from outside our state is really important, right? I mean, in the same way that you needed the cameras on the dogs attacking the youth who were fighting to vote, right? In the South in the 60s. Right. For the very same reasons, we need attention here because the local abuse, as exhibited by our own local paper, is 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 very stark. And and if left unattended, simply leaves these communities to die by pollution, to just rot and die on the vine. Hmm. All right. I have one last question before we get to our lightning round. Yes. What do you wish? Well, actually, sorry, I have two last questions. What do you wish people were paying more attention to? Um, you know, I think the real, sp- I keep harping on the racial dynamic here because it's really, it's very important. And I, I think it's easy to, to sort of understand that racism happens. And, you know, the George Floyd trial that's happened, excuse me, no, the, the murder of George Floyd and the trial of the officer who killed him um, is happening. And we can see, we understand in that, or we have some sense of the injustice that happened there. In this case, what is facilitating the land, the, the injustice toward the black community is both the local attitudes of people, but then the way those attitudes were put into place by a land use plan. And so I will say that there is a document in St. James Parish that is actually a document that details how to racially cleanse the parish. And I don't say that lightly, kind of an intense thing to say, but it's true. And so, you know, I would encourage people to go on our website and read this, this report we wrote called A Plan Without People, um, but also to, in their own communities, to look, to find out what is the mechanism behind how the racism is happening. Because it's not just that we all have an implicit bias or that, you know, people are racist or that the Klan is happening, you know, in, in pockets and places. It's that there are actual 
implementation mechanisms. And so we all need to understand what those are. All right, then my second question before the lightning round is what- That wasn't a very lightning round, was it? I'll be, I'll be more lightning. What would you like either your legacy or the Bucket Brigade's legacy to be? That's a good question. Um, I want our legacy to be that there is a much stronger movement from Cancer Alley itself and from people who live on Cancer Alley so that they have groups that are well-funded. They can make a living just as I have all these years doing this work to protect their communities from industry. And we're working hard. Our grants manager uh, you know, is working with groups to raise money and to, and to make sure that, that people can develop their organizations to do that. Okay, all right, perfect. Okay, lightning round. Okay, really lightning now, okay. What progress do you hope to see in the next year? We uh, kill Formosa plastics and enact a moratorium on any new facilities in St. James Parish. Okay. What gives you hope that progress will be made? Well, I work with some amazing people. So it's the, it's the community members that I work with. They have vision and they have faith and, and nobody can beat us. Okay. Who else is doing good work to make progress in this area? Well, there's a group based in New York that has a, a great lawyer here in Louisiana. It's called the Center for Constitutional Rights. They are coming at this very much from a justice angle. And so they're doing wonderful work. Um, State-based groups are Together Louisiana and the Tulane Environmental Law Clinic, just to name a couple. You're perfect. And then final lightning round question is, what would you suggest for our audience to be reading, to be listening to, Whose voices should they be exploring? You know, I'm very interested in Black history. And I mean, it works out well because it's important for me to be informed in our work and in, and in what's happening today in, in the field of, you know, attempts to strip people's rights and so forth. So for, for a book, I would recommend a book called White Rage by an amazing professor named Carol Anderson. And she just very much details how every advance, as we've seen in Florida, in Georgia, is met with just this crushing response, just crushing. So that's what I would recommend to read, White Rage. And I listened to a podcast by, um, by two people who, call, who describe themselves as two Black culture writers from the New York Times. It's called Still Processing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I learn a lot every time I listen to that. And for me, in my, I think in general, it's important. But for me, in my work as a white person doing this work, it's really important for me to be led by, uh, by people who can teach me and, and help some of my own biases fall away. And I really want to thank you so much for sharing the work of the Louisiana Bucket Brigade and certainly being with us and, and, and challenging us. Um, we know these conversations never really end. So we, we have a lot of work that we need to keep doing. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's, it's, I'm honored to be on this program. Thank you. You have been listening to Liberty Under Law the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, presented in collaboration with Chautauqua Institution. Our program's associate producer is Nicole Gustafson. Bryson Barnes is our producer and composer. I'm Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center and your host. Content for this program was drawn from Tea Time with the Jackson Center, a Facebook live event produced by the Jackson Center. The mission of the Robert H. Jackson Center is to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law 
as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. As a nonprofit organization, the Jackson Center's mission is made possible in great part through philanthropic gifts. To learn more about the Jackson Center, our programming, and how you can support our mission, please visit www.roberthjackson.org. You can connect with us and ask questions of future or previous guests through our website. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, remember to subscribe. Thank you. CHQ Assembly is made possible through the collaboration and innovation of Chautauqua Institution's full-time and part-time staff, seasonal staff, and many volunteers, as well as participants like you, whose engagement, gifts, and subscriptions sustain our mission.